dangerously close. Welcome to my views are my own. Uh, my reviews are my own. I'm not sure if that's the perfect thing. This is a a new thing. We did a a book review, but this is an essay, so I guess it's maybe. Anyway, I'm gonna skip all of that. My very special co-host today is Leia One Boy. Leia One Boy is the founder of Hecuma for the Future, which emphasizes the importance of regenerative agriculture which provides educational events as well as garden design and implementation. And I could go on, but I think probably uh, a lot of listeners remember Leia from her episode, Sustainable Agriculture and Seeds as Currency, as I'm pretty sure it was the title was. Uh, but yeah, if you haven't heard that one, go back and check it out. It came out in December 2021, and I learned so much from Leia. It was a great episode. I went into it not knowing what the hell we were talking about. And I came out of it a lot smarter. So I was very, very happy. Uh, what's up, Leah? Hey, thank you for having me back. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> Sorry, that was a that was a ridiculous introduction. I was... <laughs> no, it's I just... okay. I muted myself and then I needed... I forgot that I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I said, you know, if you don't remember Leah, go check out her episode. It's fascinating. It's amazing. But today we're doing something totally special, totally different. Today we're discussing the 1972 essay written by Murray Bookchin. It's called Radical Agriculture. It's an essay in which Murray Bookchin outlined his ideal system of food cultiva <laughs> cultivation and criticized the existing capitalistic system. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, ah, I can't talk today. If you're unfamiliar <laughs> with Murray Bookchin, he was an American social theorist, author, orator, historian, and political philosopher, a pioneer in the environmental movement. Bookchin formulated and developed the theory of social ecology and urban planning within anarchist, libertarian, socialist, and ecological thought. So that's a mouthful. If you guys want to read the essay yourselves, uh, you can go check it out at the Anarchist Library. It's online. Just put in his name or just put in Radical Agriculture. You'll find it. It's a good read. Uh, shoot, you want to just jump into this and just start yeah, tearing, yeah, it, tearing it apart and saying this guy's an idiot? No, I'm just no. He, I really, I really enjoyed this article. It was, it was, uh, it was interesting to read because I had not read it before. Um, you know, you and I had discussed it, and it was published in 1972. And um, you know, so that kind of stirred up some feelings. Like one is just the fact of the frustration that we're kind of still swimming through these same problems that we have been since the 70s. Um, but also the hopefulness that the work is continuing. And I think that since 72, when this is published, you know, whether with the influence of this article or the people that have been touched by the article, I do see a lot of this work um, picking up popularity. Of course, I'm steeped in this world. So, you know, it's kind of I'm looking for it and I see it. I'm not really sure if the general public really sees a lot of this shift. But I do think that people are generally becoming more educated on maybe not the title radical agriculture, but a lot of the practices and ideologies that were emphasized in the article. Yeah. And I think like, so when I reached out to you about this, uh, I think the first thing I asked you was uh, uh, when we were discussing even doing the episode was if, if, if you thought this essay was too outdated for a modern discussion and you said it was still relevant. And I was like, yeah. cool. I read it and I was like, wow, this sounds like you could still like, this could have been written last week almost. 
you know, and then, yeah, yeah, right. but, I, but, but I wasn't sure until I asked you, obviously uh, you're kind of like at this point that my views are my own like resident specialist on regenerative <laughs> agriculture, sustainable agriculture. Uh, but I guess uh, I think for me, it, it might be partly because uh, Bookchin says that agriculture is a form of culture. Uh, and what do you think he meant by that? Yeah. So, well, I don't know exactly his space. You know, I haven't done a lot of research on him. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where he's speaking from. Um, but I, you know, I, and I kind of always have to do like a disclaimer or a plug or like caveat whenever I talk about radical agriculture or methods of agriculture that are being referred to as new age agriculture or alternative or re even regenerative, which is a term that I use a lot. I usually refer to it as regenerative agriculture. And, um, you know, we have a lot of these ideas that this type of agriculture is something new because to us, our standing, our place of, or our perspective is that there's industrial agriculture and then now we are doing things a different way. Um, however, this type of agriculture that he discusses, and I'm sure, you know, we'll go more in detail for anyone who hasn't read it, but what he's really discussing is methods of agriculture that have existed long before we started with industrial agriculture or modern farming or the way that we think of agriculture today. Um, and so I don't know exactly if he was coming at it from that stance. I would hope that, you know, he seems educated enough on the topic that I'm sure he is aware of, you know, native and indigenous agricultural practices that we're copying and referencing when we're talking about radical or regenerative agriculture. Um, so when I read this, I mean, I definitely read it from that native indigenous lens of, of this method of agriculture is from this, um, you know, this communalist lens, this, um, this lens of having the natural world feed your culture, living in tandem with, uh, with nature as a part of that culture, as opposed to, you know, this is a separate thing that doesn't have ties to the rest of the way that you live your life, the way that you structure your culture, the way that you interact with the people around you, the way you're educated, etc. Um, so it's to me, this is more um, like explaining just basically that agriculture is not an isolated, separated uh, thing that doesn't have an influence on the way that we do everything else. And I think that he did a really good job further expounding on that, especially when he talks about the soil aspect and the relationship that we have with the soil and how intricate the soil is and how important it is and how basically everything that we do is sustained by soil health and having that good relationship with it. Um, so, I mean, when I read agriculture as a form of culture, I think that that really makes a really prominent point, especially as his opening statement, that it is not just this thing that we don't pay attention to or that only influences some people. I mean, it really drives every single aspect of our lives. And uh, I know like kind of what you said too, where you said like, it's hard to say precisely where this guy was coming from because we weren't there in 1972 when he wrote it or, you know, what exactly he might've meant. And he's, yeah. you know, he's no longer with it. I think he was born in 1921 passed away maybe 2006. He had a pretty long life. Uh, but I got the same thing too, where I thought he was, I really thought he was talking about indigenous agriculture as being when he was talking about the cultural aspect and being part of the land and, some things I think maybe I'm a little bit influenced by other things I've read that were not this essay that makes that draws mm -hmm. me to those conclusions immediately without him implicitly saying it. But that's what I do think of like people that have been uh, 
stewards of the land for thousands of years or in and and you there's examples today of places where you know where industrial agriculture has not yet reached certain people and the you know the wildlife the land is all healthy it's doing well because the people haven't you know overreached and turned into like kind of more parasitic and or i guess really i guess it's capitalistic and that's uh i guess what i wanted to ask you like on your thoughts was like what do you think are some of the most destructive outcomes of capitalizing agriculture? Oh, wow. There is so many. <laughs> I, I know that's uh, a crazy question to ask. I'm maybe no, just, no, it's a great question. It's a, it really is. Um, well, okay. So um, there's, there's many lenses that I could go at this from. And of course there's, there's the financial aspect. There's a resource aspect uh, which I mean, I guess is tied to finances. Of course, capitalism is heavy on the finance side. I think that one of the, I think one of the most detrimental effects of the way that we we cultivate food and the industries that we have built around that is that we have basically eliminated any ability to be sufficient uh, or self sufficient beyond those systems. So you know, for a long time, we talk about the quality of our food, chemicals in our food, the way the food is cultivated. But, you know, we can talk about those things. But most of us, the reality is that we don't exist in a space where even if we understand that, that we can act outside of it on our own. Um, and, you know, there are many, many factors to that, whether that's food access, or, um, you know, limited wages, or the demands of your job and the hours that you have to do, or, um, you know, if you have children, of course, you're going to have extra time put into um, obviously spending time with raising, educating your children. Um, but because we no longer have this kind of like communalist approach, both in the other things we do, but then also the way that we do agriculture, uh, we aren't able to tend to those things, even if we know that it's very important. Um, and then also because of the legislative aspect of it, we we have less power fighting some of those things, you know, and I'm saying some of those things to really be a big, huge blanket term for so much. Um, so and I'm trying to not go into very overly complicated explanations of all of these things. But we know what the problem is. Our lives are not structured in a way where we can give the time to fixing the, the problem, at least on a personal level and a local community level, but then also fighting some of the outcome of the way that things are on a more legislative governmental level is also very complicated because of the authority given to these companies. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's just this whole spiral. So really like trying to fix things starts at this grassroots level of trying to educate people on a personal level. And that's something that I have spent time and effort trying to do. And while I see the effects of that, it's also frustrating when I see how hard it is to access land or how hard it is to, you know, fight an HOA or fight a state, you know, small rule that limits you from growing food in X space if you're this far from that or not being able to put running water in this space or not being able to put a structure here. And, you know, there's all of these small things that keep our skills and our knowledge so segmented from really being able to come at this problem holistically like communally um and then trying to find solutions to that because the way that we exist in our capitalist system is that we are largely wage laborers and we are dependent on all of our resources whether that's 
food or health resources or mental emotional resources it's all within that system and to break away from it is nearly impossible even if you want to even if you know what the problems are and you want to and so as that relates to agriculture that is you know particularly challenging because we have to eat right and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not just something you can say well i'll go i'll go without this service or i'll go without this um this interest or this this form of expression it's you have to eat your family has to eat and and if you you're just kind of trapped on this wheel and not able to get to a space where you can basically provide these things on your own now and that's not to be all doom and gloom and say that there are no efforts and there's no worthy efforts because people are certainly doing a lot um and i feel hopeful when i see those things but I just think the most detrimental form of capitalism and its influence on agriculture in particular is it almost takes everybody within that space hostage. You know, you have no ability yeah. to not exist outside of that system and your food is a part of that system. And I mean, that's a form of control and it leads to being a form of manipulation in a lot of spaces as well. Uh, can I make a silly pop culture reference? That I that I think <laughs> uh, I I hate that this is how I am, but it's just um, there's the newest Jurassic Park movie. It's called Jurassic Park Dominion, and mm -hmm. in this one, like there's a a billionaire villain, and they but basically these people are kind of they're kind of Monsanto, and it's yeah, just yeah. and uh, and so yeah, they're a, yeah they're a bio yeah they're a biotech company, and what they in this particular the new like the new bad guy worry of the Jurassic Park world is that they've taken the tech that they use to make dinosaurs to make extra huge mutated locusts that are for some reason like because of so the all the uh, industrial farms owned by the biotech company are immune to the locusts and the locusts only kill <laughs> independent farms yeah. I, I, I know that's really silly to bring Jurassic Park into this, but that was to me the most realistic part of the whole movie. I was like, of course, a company like Monsanto, if they could, if they had the Jurassic Park DNA structure blueprints, they would do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I recently watched that. My kids love Jurassic Park, so yeah, yeah I was. I don't know if that. I don't know, I don't know that, if that buttresses your statement at all very well, but it popped up when you were talking about control and and the <laughs> that just came into yeah. my mind. Well, I mean, because if you control resources that people need, you essentially control everything else. So, yeah. I mean, because if it comes down to it and, and, and you know, my kids starve or my kids eat and I, I'm going to feed them, but that will come with my compliance to a certain degree, depending on how my life is structured and where I live and what resources are made available to me. And while we all love to think that we're very close to working hard enough to become millionaires or billionaires, the reality is, is that we're much closer to being impoverished and not actually having those resources. And it takes a couple bad months and that's, yeah, that's could be your reality. And, and speaking of impoverished, you know, I hate this too, but, but I'm going to follow up my pop culture reference <laughs> with a, with a cliche, but I think it's important because I think another aspect of the, of uh, the capitalization of agriculture is food waste. And so, I mean, like in our generation, like it's not something that, that you know, you said you're, you, we would say to our kids because this is more like something our, our parents or grandparents might've said, but that the whole, like, you know, if you don't finish eating all, you know, your vegetables, like you're, you're, 
like there's starving children in other countries that would love to have these vegetables that you're refusing to eat. But in all reality, there is tons of food waste. There's food that goes to waste because there's they, it can't be sold. And because mm-hmm. it's capitalized, human suffering isn't taken into the equation. So any like a corporation that has hundreds of thousands of pounds of edible food would rather dump it in a landfill than give it to starving people because it's it doesn't, you know, it hurts their bottom line. They can't give it away. So Yeah. Yeah. And that, that reminded me of a, a book that I'm reading. I'm reading a book called Um a different mirror by Ronald Takaki. And it's uh, basically a history of the United States, but it's less of this like propaganda history of the United States. It, it really looks at, you know, each different issue and then goes very deep into the history in a way that you just, I mean, at least I personally have not seen, I can't, you know, I can't speak for every class or every professor or, but um, so this book, it, it obviously touches on several different Native American tribes and the history of the United States and Native Americans. And then a lot of the really terrible things that have happened, which I knew were bad, but oh my gosh, like reading this book, it's just so much worse than I even thought, which, you know, I feel disappointed in myself for not having done further research before, but at least I have it now. So anyway, I'm going to be plugging this book until I die. I swear, I've probably talked to like 10 different people about it oh, in the last month. Uh, plug but, it again, plug it again, please. What is it yeah, called? Yeah, it's called A Different Mirror by Ronald Takaki. A Different Mirror by Ronald Takaki. And guys, I'll tell you this. Uh, if Leia says it's a good book to read, I assure you it's a good book to read. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Yeah. I'm going um, to put that on my yeah. list for sure. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, so in this book, he's talking about, um, you know, I can't remember the tribe and I feel like I'm doing a disservice, but he's talking about basically... Um, the communal idea of of many Native American cultures. And of course there are many, so I'm not saying all because I can't speak for all. Um, But at least in this chapter, he's talking about this and he's talking about, you know, when they started interacting with Westerners who came over, how they were so baffled by this individualist idea of of letting somebody in your community starve rather rather than providing resources to them. And so they were talking about um, basically granary stores that they had and these additional resources that each person in the community contributed. You know, they kept the largest portion of their crop, but they contributed other, um, you know, another portion of their crop to the store. And it was specifically for people in their community who were having a hard time that year, whether that was for sickness or whatever reason, whatever was going on, um, they had this reserve available and they saved it and accounted for the fact that it would be shared and it wouldn't just be shared with this community. It could be shared with neighboring communities and how this is just this like ingrained idea. And then over time, um, you know, through after many different things, moving to uh, reservations, uh, different acts that came in place to basically take more and more of their executive power um, over time, how the government very specific specifically wanted to change that culture from more of a communalist culture. And one of the ways that they did it was to basically transform them into modern farmers. So split and divide land and make it into private property instead of communal property. Um, But then also um, to convert them over to wage laborers because that made sure that they would be further dependent on those systems. But yeah, so this was really interesting to read about because while I understood it on kind of a base level to basically see the timeline and not just the timeline of oopsie this happened but the malicious intent behind crafting this to happen a certain way uh was really fascinating and i think you know at various points this article touches on it too because it talks a lot about 
um, what it calls early and then modern agricultural practices. So I'm assuming when he says early agricultural practices, he is referencing native tribes. It doesn't say it specifically, but I mean, I would make that assumption that that's what he's talking about. Um, and it kind of talks briefly about like that communalist approach and then how it becomes like this for-profit resource and how making basic needs for profit, um, you know, just how that kind of like further erodes anyone's ability to really have any sovereign say in their culture and how it's structured and then how they want to spend their time within that culture as well. It's, you know, you think it's like most of us have probably read uh, about, you know, Wounded Knee or The Trail of Tears and there's some of the more famous uh, uh, examples of colonial cruelty to the indigenous people in America as, you know, as they spread across the land. But there really is no there's no bottom to the depths. If you need, the more you research, the more you learn. Just the uh, like, it's it's hard to describe. It's like uh, without using words like evil and shit. But you know, just like the yeah. depravity of like how far you will go to destroy communities for a buck, you know, for a nickel. You know, like and that's because I that's feel what, so righteous doing it. I think honestly, we really did just kind of like come full circle around to the very where we started the essay, just talking about agriculture is culture i mean you kind of nailed it right there with and also with uh the capitalist approach to agriculture destroying that making there's there's nothing cultural about in like and honestly i could actually read right here straight from the essay uh and i think this is it's just kind of continues with your point uh but bookshin wrote uh in the modern glistening supermarket the buyer walks dreamily through a spectacle of packaged materials in which the pictures of plants, meat, and dairy foods replace the life forms from which they are derived. The fetish assumes the form of the real phenomenon. Uh, and then he goes on to say, <clears throat> the Big Mac and the Swift sausage no longer convey even the faintest notion that a living creature was painfully butchered to provide the consumer with that food. So, you know, to me, that mostly brought to mind my belief that, for one thing, uh, that most people wouldn't eat meat if they had to take any part in the process of its production. Uh, I mean, that was kind of like, for me, that was my first take from it, but I'm sure there's a lot more to take. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that, you know, and I'm going to try to explain this without sounding like too hippie, but, you know, <laughs> one of the, the other things that he touches on is, is how cultivating the soil, cultivating the land is a sacred act. And, um, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but I do feel this weight in what I'm doing and the importance in what I'm doing when I'm in these spaces and when I'm trying to cultivate these spaces. Um, because the, the nature of agriculture, the nature of cultivating food or whether you're slaughtering food is that it's not just for you. So I could create this beautiful space and yes i get the joy out of doing it but it is something that i am doing and hoping will continue for the betterment of others and i think that you know in the excerpt that you've described that is the opposite of what it is i mean it's just cultivating these fields and then harvesting them just to get that food into a grocery store for that profit and then like you said earlier destroying all of the extra food instead of distributing it to people and i think that you know, regardless of where people stand, it just, it takes out like that sacredness of a community and then your relationship with what you're actually doing. 
So, you know, I, I don't really eat a lot of meat. I, I've got, I've gone through times where I've not eaten any to where I'll eat some in certain cultural aspects of it's being, or situations where it's being offered to me. Um, but I think that to have a role in your food production, whether it's growing plants or being the one who's slaughtering the animals, you have this interconnected feeling of being a part of these systems and you recognize how you are not removed from that. You are a part of it. And your decisions, whether it's to eat meat or whether it's to plant certain plants, harvest certain plants, cook certain foods, share that with your community, these are big decisions that don't impact you. So whether or not someone would decide to eat meat, I mean, I think like a lot of people don't want to slaughter animals. And I think that the way that we kind of display those images is definitely very segmented and separate. But I think that people would recognize the weight of their decisions, that this isn't just like a flippant thing. I am a part of a full system and literally every single thing I do has an influence and an impact on something else. And I, I just think that, you know, our decision-making is really cheapened because so much of our culture is, um, you know, let me save you from this. Like that's how capitalism displays itself. That's how our current system displays itself is let me save you from this inconvenience of having to mull over the morality of this choice that you're going to make. You know, it's, it's let me put this distance between you and the act of what you're doing so that way you can disconnect your brain from it instead of having to feel the full feelings of the choice you're making. Um, and it's, it's frustrating because, you know, while maybe that makes it easier in some ways, it detaches us from our community in a lot of other ways. And I at least feel like part of the point of being a human, like not that I know the purpose of life, but I mean, you should be feeling these things and grappling with the difficulty and, you know, feeling the joys and the, the accomplishment that comes from certain things that you do, but also feeling the full weight of the hard decisions that you have to make. And I think that whether it's like the way we show things in a grocery store, the way that we view agriculture as a whole, or the way that we view other things, we really like create this disconnect that keeps people from having to face their own humanity in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's, you know, we don't all have to be farmers in order for us to have a connect to like to the farms and the fields and the food and, and where our food comes from. And I, I really did like that line that he had where he said uh, the fetish becomes the actual and rather than the, the genuine thing that you are, that you are meant to be eating, you're eating an idea of that thing. And yeah. that's, I mean, yeah. especially in, in the meat industry, which is the, the one of the most horrific <laughs> industries on the planet. Yeah. And because I've well, also, oh, go ahead. Well, no, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say like your point on not everyone has to be a farmer. Like that's absolutely correct. And like, I'm definitely not advocating that everybody go do something that they don't want to do because some people just don't want to. And that's how, you know, these societies were not like pre-modern farming were not set up as though everyone had to do the same thing. There was specialization as well, but there weren't so many degrees of separation between yourself and the person making your food right so if you went to a butcher you would typically go to a butcher that you had some type of relationship with or someone you knew had a relationship with so you could get to the person making your food yeah. uh, or producing your food but today it's like when you look at the big horrific meat industrial complexes and the workers that are being exploited in those uh those places you know you can't actually contact anybody from those companies to try to have a conversation about how that food is being produced and whether it's, you know, ethical or not. And I think that that is 
like also one of the main points of capitalism is those degrees of separation um, because it allows some of that like profit driven um, inhumanity to, to take place in these spaces. So that way that production is faster. Yeah, I, you know, that's the thing too, is by myself personally, I, I mean, I go out of my way to know farmers. Uh, I go, you know, I go to like farmers markets and shit like that. So I get to meet a lot of the people that have produced some of the food that I consume, but by no means, like, is that even a 5% of the food I actually eat comes from people that I've ever met personally. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it's also, that's, you know, a lot of places people don't really have the privilege to do that either. You know, I'm lucky there's a farmer's market, not far from my home. I can get there in five minutes, but that's once a week. So I am relegated to the supermarket the rest of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to find those opportunities. Right. And there's no quick, simple fix on how do we, or what's even the right way to do this. Right. If we're going to fix our system, what's the right way to do that? There's so many considerations that go into that um, because we're just in such a difficult space at the moment. Do you find any irony in the fact that indigenous agriculture is, you know, not only like we were just saying, it's more ethical than industrial agriculture, but that it has always been the more advanced uh, practice. Does that, does that make yeah. sense? I, I, in some ways, I think of like uh, industrial agriculture as being like, if you say you wanted big muscles, you know, you, you, or you're, you play baseball or whatever it is. And so you start taking a lot of steroids and you, so you produce a lot of muscles real fast. You get real big, which is a lot like what industrial farming is. And then you, but I mean, then, then you've completely destroyed your body. You know, you've, you've taken off and you'll never get those muscles again. So I don't, that's, I know that was kind of a unnecessary tangent to go on, but. uh, No, I get, I get it. Um, Yeah. I think it's really ironic because, well, it really speaks to the way that we currently measure progress. Right. And we typically measure progress through force or ways that are more forceful that, which we can take immediately without like a measured understanding of how that influences the future. Um, And, you know, I've read several different things on this, talked to several different people about it. And so I'm trying to to merge a lot of different ideas in this right now. But, But basically when I look at different indigenous agricultural systems, one thing that they have more than we have is foresight. So it's, you know, it's not just what am I doing this year? What am I cultivating this year? It's what is this going to be in 20 years? You know, if I'm, if I let this rest, if I let this field rest for the next 10 years, you know, what can I grow on this later? Managing the land in a way that is really profitable. But, you know, there are times where Western Westerners came and saw these um, rotation systems of, you know, not using this field, not using that field. And all they saw was a lack of opportunity because they saw land that wasn't being used. And to them, it was, well, why aren't you cultivating the land this year? You have however many hundreds of acres that you're not using. And to them, that seems so non-productive because they could turn a profit from that field right now. Um, But then we just kind of like adopted those ideas. And now we're in a space where we don't let land rest. We have soil that is dead and continuing to die at a terrifying rate um, to the point where we're not going to be able to use it. It's not going to be alive. Um, You know, this article touches on basically that soil is alive and it's this ecosystem that you also have to cultivate. Um, And so it's just, 
it's very ironic because you read all of these things, um, you know, about how natives were referred to as savages or as, you know, lacking the intelligence of understanding basically industrial modern ideas or, I mean, there's so many terrible examples of terrible sayings, but, but then basically you look at our measures of progress and how much that's actually destroyed. Um, so it's definitely ironic. I think it's more, uh, like sadly ironic. I don't know if yeah. that makes sense. Oh yeah. Then totally. a lot of people realize because it's not just, you know, we thought we were better and haha, we did it worse. It's like, we are creating very real, real, terrible problems that unless we find solutions to, well, unless we implement solutions that we know could fix and reverse some of these problems we've caused, we're just going to continue basically eroding all of the earth while still standing on this high horse of well we did it better in progress and industry and look at all the things that we did and the jobs we made and blah 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 and yeah. at, at some point it's going to become irrelevant you know i think too this makes me think of uh right now because we're going through this very regressive period of schools banning books and one of the books that's currently a banned book is the grapes of wrath and you know at first glance you might think oh they're banning the grapes of wrath because well, for I mean, for one thing, the hero kills a cop <laughs> in the book, but yeah. <laughs> that's but I don't believe that's why the book is banned because it you know because it's about resisting authority for for your rights. It's also because it's about the Dust Bowl and a lot of what you were saying, where the people that started farming that land destroyed the soil. They created you know a desolate, a huge desolate, uh, enormous region in the United States, and. I have a strong belief that when you look at these banned books, like you know, first you would say you see, oh, it's conservatives or it's religious people, and and but you know, you just follow it up because follow up the line: who's controlling those conservative politicians? Those are corporations, and probably you know, people that not to just keep harping on Monsanto, but anyone like the people that are behind the slash and burn shit in uh, in Brazil, like McDonald's. You know, they don't want kids yeah. learning just the the basic building blocks of critical thinking for how land mm -hmm. should be treated does that make sense yeah no it does and um in that book that i was talking about by ronald takaki um he spends a few chapters well i've so far read a few chapters about migrant workers um plantation workers both in hawaii california texas and different places in the united states of different ethnic groups um you know from mexico from japan from china um africans and it's funny because, you know, on the education point that you talked about, he was explaining in these chapters how there were efforts from lobbyists on politicians and politicians on the local school systems to uh, specifically limit the education of the children of these migrant workers in order to create another generation of workers. Um, because they realize, you know, the more education people have, the longer that they have access to this education, the more likely they are to either not want to do those jobs or to create active problems to the plantation owners, um, you know, the farm owners in these situations. And yeah, I mean, it really feeds into that. And it makes you wonder because we look at our education as something being separate from these political influences. Um, but then you see how American history is very limited in the perspectives that it gives and how you know, you look at the banned books or books that are being banned today and even through history and what are the common points and ideas that bring those together? You know, why would they ban these? Is it just because, you know, there's like, it talks about sexuality or is it because it talks about this underlying political uh, issue within these books? Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's, 
I don't know. I, I guess I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with that, but I, I've seen some very specific points of education limiting or limiting that access to education specifically for the purpose of creating future workers because with education, people will not still be, um, you know, at least feeling like they have to take these positions. Uh, yeah, I agree entirely. And it's, and sometimes it can be confusing because so often it seems like some of these, uh, some political agendas seem to be cruelty for cruelty's sake. And maybe sometimes that really is just the point just to make it just to confuse you. I, I don't know, but I would also say that 90% of the time when something that appears to be cruel is happening, if you're willing to look at it economically and at a, you know, look at the whole picture, you will find that somebody is profiting enormously from whatever form of cruelty, it, you know, especially when we're talking about migrant workers, things of that nature, uh, plantations, you know, all these things. Some, it's, it's, uh, it's a profit for someone. Someone is profiting yeah. some grotesque, grotesque sum of money to make sure that large groups of people remain oppressed. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I think I said it in the last episode we did when we were specifically talking about food sovereignty is that today, the way we do agriculture, it forces exploitation. Like there is no way to produce the yields that we do on the land that we do uh, without exploitation happening. So, and, and my first example of that is just, if you look at the workers who are um, harvesting a lot of this crop in those places, you know, that is who is being exploited today. If you look in the past, you can see slavery and um, enslaved people as being the ones exploited because of agricultural industry. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's just impossible to, to force agriculture the way that we do it and there not to be exploitation happening. And that means also high profits for others. Um, and I think, you know, the, one of the main points of this article is, is basically that early agriculture was about community and modern agriculture is about profit. And yeah. Yeah. if you see that, I mean, you see the quality of life differences, you see, um, you know, just basically, I mean, quality of life being the main one, because obviously you have a better quality of life if you're not being exploited. Um, but then just also that sovereignty, the buy-in into your system, the buy-in into your community, um, your community reaping the benefits of your labor as opposed to your labor benefiting um, a company. Uh, uh, do you mind if I quote from the essay again real quick? Just No, go ahead. Uh, okay, uh, I think this kind of goes along with, with what, we were, what we were just saying just now, but uh, Bookchin wrote in the essay, uh, a radical approach to agriculture seeks to transcend the prevailing instrumentalist approach that views food cultivation merely as a human technique uh, opposed to natural resources. Uh, this radical approach is literally ecological in the strict sense that the land is viewed as oikos, uh, which means home in Greek. Uh, land is neither a resource nor a tool but the oikos of myriad kinds of bacteria, fungi, insects, earthworms, and small mammals. And I felt like he was saying that the radical approach was for humans to return to living in harmony with the land and that our industrial approach behaves more like we are a disease on the land. Um, I don't know if you would, if, if you feel like my language is a little strong there, but when you were, I, when you were just saying kind of what the difference between 
the in- indigenous approach and the way things were and the way things could be uh or this profit driven capitalized approach uh, yeah i don't know but do, do you think i'm being no. harsh by saying <laughs> i i don't i don't i I'm probably holding back a bit and being a little bit more calculated <laughs> in my language and my uh, harsh views on modern agriculture because it really, I mean, it is, if you if you think of any disease or any parasite, I mean, it, it is forcing you to exist outside of the natural conditions of that environment or or that host, whatever it may be. And the way that we do agriculture forces that. And, you know, especially if you look at, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of like a soil nerd and I love focusing on soil because so many people just see it as dirt, as just being our basic ground layer. But it, I mean, it's so complex. It's this huge, thriving, beautiful ecosystem to which we literally owe our lives. Yeah. And we owe everything we've ever eaten. And I mean, most of what we wear and most of what we build with. And I mean, literally, we owe it everything. And we for some reason seem to think that its health is not important and that somehow we can just force it to continue producing at the same level into the future which is absolutely impossible and um well so, oh, such no. a crazy thing right now too is that you could i mean depending on where your food is coming from you could be eating your vegetables and you know eating a, what what a, what appears to be a well-balanced diet and be nutrient deficient because mm-hmm. the soil yeah. is nutrient deficient. And yep. I, I think particularly, as I recall, like vitamin B is one of the hardest vitamins to now get naturally because mm-hmm. of uh, yeah. soil depletion. Yeah, it's um, so vitamin B, it's partially soil depletion. And also I was reading it's, uh, you know, how much we wash and sanitize everything. So people, I think, and I could be entirely wrong. So feel free to check fact check me. I'm referencing something that I read a while ago, but the way that I understand it is that, you know, we think that you have to get vitamin B from eating plant or animals and that, you know, vegans or vegetarians are typically deficient, but it's actually um, easier to get from the interaction of things from the soil. But, you know, we heavily wash all of our root vegetables, like our potatoes and stuff. And we have to because of the conditions they're grown in. But people would typically get enough vitamin B just because of the way that they interacted with the soil. We don't wash everything as heavily. We typically ended up eating some dirt, you know, when we cooked our soups or whatever. Um, And it's not so much getting it from the animals, but now the way that the soil is, the animals aren't getting enough of it either because the soil conditions are are so dead. Um, So it's like... Yeah, it's a mix of basically soil being dead. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a little like almost a parallel that it just kind of dawned on me. I, not exactly, but it's like a, a vitamin D deficiency because so many of us are trapped under fluorescent lights for so many hours mm-hmm. a day that, yeah, you know, we're not getting even the natural D, which comes to us freely from the sun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, it's we've done a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't want to. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to be corny and do the whole like go out and touch grass. But I, but I don't also. I don't mind that saying. I think it's. I think it's relevant. Yeah. Well, and as I mean, I guess to also quote. I mean, he said that radical agriculture seeks to restore humanity's sense of community. Oh my god, as, that was the question that I wrote for you right here. Sorry. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, no, well, I'll ask just, your question and no, it might relate to it. It's literally what you said. Okay, do you want me, you want me to read yeah. it? It's word go for ahead. word what you said. How do you think radical agriculture could restore humanity's sense of community? That's what I wrote to ask yeah. you just now. Okay. <laughs> so, um, 
So I was, I found this quote to be really interesting because he wasn't, he cited, you know, natural human community as being the second point of the point he's trying to make. And the first thing that he cites is uh, by giving full recognition to the soil as an ecosystem, a bi biotic community, and second, by viewing agriculture as the activity of a natural human community, um, a rural society and culture. So I think that when a lot of people obviously talk about community, we're talking about our interpersonal communities with other humans and how we interact together. And if they branch off from that, they might say, you know, the way that we interact with um, animals or, or our ecosystem, but mainly how we view things. And I thought that it was so important and uh, significant that he cited the recognition of soil as an ecosystem as the first important part of community, because, you know, we, we have to work in communion with that soil, not just because of the benefit that it has to us, but I mean, if you were looking at the preservation of our species, yes, because of the benefit that it has to us, um, but also if you're looking at like a full system approach and how to really, you know, understand what you're doing when you're growing food and what you're doing when you're providing that food to your, your family or to your friends. Um, having that relationship with the soil is so important and not just constantly taking, but what can you give to it to, to support it and allow it to grow. And maybe it sounds corny and, you know, people who are not necessarily like as into the outdoors wouldn't see it as important, but I mean, there is no interpersonal human community if there's not a community or a communion with the soil as well. It is so important and so crucial and we will literally not continue to exist without it. So there has to be that recognition um, but then that give of, of what can I give to this? How can I support it? How can I let it grow? How can I increase the diversity instead of um, thinking that simplicity is better just because it's uh, easier for me? Because these systems thrive with complex diversity as opposed to trying to do like the industrial approach, which is to oversimplify everything and, you know, take out various species and just streamline everything to to just something super simple for people to understand. But yeah, that um, just like that communion with the soil is what is going to allow us to continue. Uh, and I think too, like Bookshin, I, I, at some point in this essay, and I don't have the quote at hand uh, and I didn't particularly super like the way he phrased it, but I don't think he meant it in a negative way, but he was talking about uh, more like indigenous cultures and people like, you know, pre-industrial capitalized agriculture uh and the power of myth and uh and worship and like we were saying earlier we were discussing uh harvesting as a sacred act uh mm -hmm. being being one and so i think but when you look at it like if you just really take a step back and look and you're saying oh we're more sophisticated now people back then used to worship like let's say you know you could say maybe uh, with some Native Americans, maybe they had uh, they worshipped the buffalo because it was a provider, and you know and there was all the stuff, and you're like, oh, that's all religion and woo woo, and uh, it's uh, all make believe imaginary. But I would say that all that we've done by becoming industrialized and capitalized is we've traded that for the worship of dollars, you know, petrodollars, dollar bills things that are far less real than what we used to worship and mm -hmm. 
in no way do I believe that the people that, you know, actual capitalists, which, you know, you and I aren't capitalists. We don't, you know, we're, we're not, we don't work on wall street. We're not hanging out with Elon Musk. Those are capitalists, people with the billions of dollars. And if you, if you don't believe that those people don't worship money, I think it's like, that's a foolish that's they that's truly money is their religion. And, and money is the religion of so many countries now, whether or not people yeah. claim to be of an older, more formal religion. So yeah. I don't I thought I'd throw that out well, there. No, I mean, and it makes sense. And so I'm by no means a theologist. I'm not an expert on any religion. I am not religious at all. So huge caveat to what I'm about to say. But I think that if you look at patterns of, of what is worshipped or who is worshipped, um, I think a lot of it relates back to the gratitude of that community. Right. And the way that our society is structured is our gratitude goes to money because money is the thing that gives us all the other stuff. But then if you look at these other communities who put an emphasis on the soil or who put an emphasis, you know, of of various gods who provide water or who provide food or who provide these things, it's kind of like this external display of gratitude. And, you know, while I'm not religious. I do try to operate from a central compass of gratitude and using that as like my centerpiece of what am I doing and how am I acting and what am I trying to give to my community? Um, And then, you know, that guides me and where I'm able to put my attention because I feel extremely grateful to soil, but that's because I have that understanding. Um, You know, our, (laughs) our knowledge and our understanding under our current system is so fragmented and so decontextualized. So all of the context of why soil is important or all of the context of why anything is important has just been eroded because the way that we segment everything, the way that, you know, if I do this job over here, I don't know anything about that job over here. Or if I know about, um, if I happen to know about one topic, I don't know anything about another topic, even though they might actually be very interrelated taking away that context and fragmenting, segmenting, decontextualizing everything just makes it so hard for people to have an overall understanding of what is actually important. And if you look at building material, or if you look at the fibers that make our clothes, or if you look at the food that we eat, it really all relates back to the soil. So to me, I personally see that as being central because I understand the significance of that. Um, But just the way that our system is like, you can't, see the significance of things. So your significance gets put on money because you see money as being the thing that gives you everything. And, you know, you've made me want to add a caveat to my previous statement. And it's, and it's just this, it's just very simple. I am fully aware that money is a conduit to the food that I eat. It's a conduit to the roof over my head, the, the shelter, the clothing, all the things I have. And I only want to add that caveat because I know there's an argument that I often have to face with people where they're like, oh, you don't like money? Then, you know, let, I'd like to see you live without it. And it's, I, I think that's, like that. it's, uh, yeah, I think, well, I think for the most part, it's either a bad faith argument. They don't really, they're just saying it to, because they can't come up with a valid argument or it's, you know, people just are maybe just not open-minded enough to understand that things can change. Systems can change. But mm-hmm. I did want to add that caveat just in case, you know, I just, just so that nobody can throw that argument in there. Like, you don't like money? Don't use it. You know, well, go live I in think, the dirt. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like those comments. It's very much like that. If you don't like the U S then get out or whatever. Yeah. It's comments, a bullshit fucking which, argument. 
And it, I mean, also, yeah, I mean, they frustrate me because it automatically, no matter what you say, your comment is wrong, but it also removes any ability for improvement. I mean, and also you can, you can have issues with something. I can have issues with the system, but still be fully trapped within that system. I mean, and I don't want my children to be homeless or starving. So I'm going to utilize the capital that I have to provide with them for them while also continuing to work to hope that in their future, they might have some chance at something else. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those, I, they're know, just disarming arguments. I think, uh, and I'm, that might have been even unnecessary for me to add that caveat, but I just felt, because just I maybe I've been on Twitter a little bit too much recently, and I feel like sometimes you just got to like cover your bases. So that's what I wanted to do. But yeah, I actually, yeah, I, had I, a, I had a question for you for uh, something. This is from, uh, from the essay, uh, Radical Ag- Agriculture. And I didn't fully understand this. I thought you probably could shine some light on it. Uh, I mean, I, I read it and I, you know, but it's about uh, how he uses the term variety. And I think you did just kind of touch on it a little bit uh, just a little while ago. But um, why is variety so valuable to rag- to radical agriculture? Or what do you think Bookshin means by that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's a couple ways to look at this. Um I mean, it could obviously be like related back to like genetics, which, you know, diversity in any species, diversity in, you know, anywhere really supports and sustains that overall population success. Um, so if you're looking at it from like a genetic standpoint, like you, you want to have that variety, you want to have, um, yeah, sorry, I'm explaining this <laughs> badly. No, 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 but, no I, um, I, 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 I totally get it, what you're saying. Yeah. With, with so g- g- genetically. If you want to create a resilient system and agriculture, um, I would generally promote to have a very diverse system. And the reason for that is basically support from multiple angles. So, you know, if you're looking at just an isolate, like my backyard garden, um, and let's say that there's a heat wave or, you know, maybe I just don't water back there for a while. If I only have one kind of plant, and it's particularly susceptible to heat or not being watered, it's not very resilient, it will all die. And then I have no food. Um, but if I create a very robust, diverse, uh, varied ecosystem in my backyard with different plants of different heights, some like shade, some like sun, they interact with each other, they create these little microclimates, um, you know, they, they all support that diversity in the soil, they bring different nutrients to that soil, even if I neglect it, maybe some things will die, but maybe other things will do better. And so basically, if you are trying to ensure the success of a species or of an ecosystem or your garden in the backyard, you really want to emphasize that variety because it's the complexity of those food systems that lead to a more um, structured or not structured necessarily, but to a more um, stable structure. Um, But if you are trying to basically pare it all down or simplify it, um, that lack of diversity is what leads to systems that fail, you know, whether that's in floods or in droughts or whatever the conditions might be. Um, But they're going to be more susceptible to just being entirely wiped out. I mean, I guess one of the the most, and this is to me, I guess, really powerful because I love wolves. I love all animals. I mean, I'm an animal loving guy but wolves are you know particularly just uh fascinating to me and the reintroduction into wolves into a lot of the north american wilderness and what they do for the ecology 
is just you know mind blowing. You know, in places mm-hmm. that were like kind of like like the ecology was dying because yeah, the wolves have yeah. been hunted out of existence, and they like you know certain places they reintroduce like one pack of wolves, and within a year, it's one of the the whole environment is flourishing with biodiversity. So I, I yeah. guess I don't know if that really matches up quite with what you're saying because I know it's not an agricultural um, example, but. Yeah, I mean, everything is interrelated in a lot of ways that we don't quite understand. I mean, if you look at like other animals through a space, um, you know, there's a lot of efforts in regenerative agriculture or regenerative grazing using either cattle or bison to uh, basically restore prairies because the way that they interact with the plants, the inputs from their waste, um, you know, they can basically boost that soil and when done responsibly and not overgrazing, but when doing it regeneratively, they can boost and rebuild those spaces. So animal interaction in those spaces is really important. And the way that we industrialize things, we do typically push animals out of spaces. And if we're not industrializing it for um, either buildings or roads or whatever, maybe we're wanting to use that public space. So we are putting an emphasis to driving out those animal populations. But yeah, um, I think the last time we talked, I talked a little bit about like monocultures or like mono ag, which, you know, you see either like corn or soy, you see just basically one main cash crop being grown and how you don't have that diversity in that land. And you see that soil basically dying and eroding over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just diversity. It's, you know, not just like a catchphrase. It's really important. <laughs> um, I do want to, uh, touch on this too i'm 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 glad he brought this up and i i wonder what he was thinking about in 1972 not that like there wasn't a ton of uh exciting technology going on then but i'm i you know of course you know it's going to be hard for me to do an interview without you without without wanting to bring up tech just a little bit mm-hmm. I'm not, it's yeah. not gonna, <laughs> but uh bookchin writes a lot about new uh, eco he calls them, he calls them eco technologies that mm-hmm. could make uh, food production more sustainable, even in cities, uh, mm-hmm. as, as he writes it. And but I, uh, you know, this is 2022. So it's been quite a while. And I was going to th- ask, what do you think are some of the most important uh, eco technologies that are developing now? Hmm. Okay, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to answer this question because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the scale that I do things, it, it's not like I'm, I'm supplementing with a lot of different um, devices or or instruments to make it easier for me. I mean, I know like different farmers will use different um, tools that can measure things in the soil, um, you know, different like nutrient levels in the soil. And that's really helpful for them, especially as they transition over to different systems. So if you have farmers, for example, who have always farmed like what we consider to be traditionally, or at least the modern way, heavy um, inputs into that soil. And then as they transition to not using those things and then going more for like cover cropping, or uh, just using different regenerative techniques and they want to basically be able to monitor the uh, success of their soil and the health of their soil. You know, some of these instruments are helpful. Um, You know, I have talked to different people who really like vertical gardening, um, who will use um, hydroponics or aquaponics. I know one like uses fish and one doesn't. I can't remember which one that is, (laughs) but um, I mean, different tools for utilizing like small spaces, I think are really helpful in urban areas, um, just because you have limited access to dirt and ground. So being able to go up and utilizing some of the, um, 
the materials to basically provide the structure for being able to plant those gardens up and then um, being able to monitor, making sure that the plants themselves are getting enough, um, enough of the nutrients that they need. Now, that's not something that I do, so I can't really speak to that too much. Um, I think that technology is great, but I think also I'm kind of of the mindset that if you can be in a space where you're not using it as much, I think yeah. that you can really cultivate more of that relationship like with your space, with the soil, taking the time to observe that space, to understand what that space needs, what it can give you, how you can serve each other. I mean, I know that's more of like a, a no, it's a, naturalist it's a, stance. That's the right. It's a, I, I, I mean, I think you know me well enough to know from our from our last podcast that it's going to be. I'm a science fiction kind of dude, and any chance mm-hmm. I can get to like go, well, what kind of? And what I was thinking, you know, yeah. for for me, like with a lot of the tech that I've been interested in lately, it's more uh, climate tech. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's not uh, re- really relevant to this. So what popped into my mind, and here's another super dumb pop culture reference, but I can't help it. I watched this movie called uh, The Gentleman. It's mm-hmm. a Guy Ritchie movie and it's uh, it's in England. And what's his name? Matthew McConaughey is a weed dealer, but he's, he's like a, he's like the biggest, he sells the most weed in all of England and nobody knows how he does it because there's no farmland. And he's mm-hmm. developed this whole system of underground uh hydroponic weed farms and he keeps <laughs> yeah. them underneath uh like old uh like people old royalties homes because those people don't really have enough money to maintain their homes so he keeps their like uh homes updated with weed money anyway i was just thinking about like that kind of tech like you know he's developed you know he's, yeah, he's producing yeah. thousands of pounds of weed underground i don't know <laughs> it's- well i mean like tech helps scale right so yeah. I mean, anything that I'm doing right now, like I don't, I don't necessarily have a space where I necessarily need to scale or I'm not providing for enough people where I really need to consider long-term scaling, you know, maybe over like the next five to 10 years or something like that. Um, you know, I have a friend who um, I just saw like a video that he posted from his farm where they were using drones to help drop seed, like um, cover crop seed. Awesome. Um, yeah. Like a interseason crop that's going to cover the ground, which will also feed the soil, but will also keep the ground covered to keep the ground temperature down because uncovered ground will obviously heat up, um, you know, more carbon will escape like those types of things. So keeping the ground covered is really important. Um, extra plug for not weeding if you don't have to, or not raking leaves if you don't have yeah, to. Sure. Um, but so they utilize, yeah. So they utilize drones to basically drop the seed over. I don't even know how many acres. I mean, a lot of acres where if a person were to do that, I mean, it would take probably days, weeks, but they were able to do it in a day because they were able to utilize the technology for that. And then that is something that is a very regenerative method um, and is, you know, incredibly helpful. It saves time and money. So I think things like that are extremely important and extremely valuable when you're trying to boost and, and restore and convert a huge space, um, but have limited manpower to be able to do it. You know, uh, can I bring up when you were just talking about like raking, mowing lawns, all that, it, like un- unnecessary yeah. weeding. And so I was attempting that earlier this year, just, uh, you know, because the thing, the number one thing you can do uh, for bees and, you know, people know that there is a, pro- you know, bees are going extinct, basically. And it's something that we, we have, there's things we can do to stop it. And the number one best thing you can do, if everyone did it, stop mowing your lawn 
it would be a dramatic yeah. help. So I was trying to trying to make my lawn just basically be friendly and <laughs> like I don't mm-hmm. hang out in my lawn, so I don't need it to be manicured. I don't play cricket or whatever. What's that game? Croquet. <laughs> but anyway, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. anyway, I, I let it turn into a jungle, and then one of my I got so I got in trouble with the city, and I got a. a they hit me with a code violation because one of my neighbors snitched on me. So, so I had to, I had to mow it all down and it broke my heart. I was like, ah, look at all this habitat and there's bunnies and stuff out there, man. So anyway, there's a way, there's a way around it. Next summer I'm going to, there's, you can get a, you can get some kind of permission to make your lawn Mm -hmm. into a habitat, but I didn't go through the proper channels. I was just doing it on my own. There is a way to go through the city and have a permit. So when they try and hit you with a code violation, you can say, no, I'm a habitat. So that's that's for next year. The idea that you need a permit is frustrating. Yeah, but Nashville's yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, there's different programs where you can even get support, and they'll provide either seeds or you know maybe seedlings with the flowers themselves that you can plant. You know, if you don't want to do it all at once, you could just kind of like dig up certain sections of grass and slowly like replace them with native uh, plants for pollinator support. Um, you know, you can also replace your grass with like a clover or something, um, you know, like white clover or red, there's different kinds and they won't grow more than, well, it's dependent by type, but you know, maybe like six inches. So then it's kind of like a ground cover. You know, the thing with that is like grass is a non-native monoculture. You're going to be replacing it with another monoculture, which meaning just like that one type of plant. But I would definitely argue that something that flowers and seeds would be better for bees than just having cut grass if you have to keep it at a lower lower height. Well, I, I yeah. had I had tons of wildflowers out there. It's just there's not there's nothing I could do because the the way the yeah. um the the code violation. So they gave me I think they gave me a month to fix it, which I mean it didn't take. It took a day to fix it, but the punishment mm-hmm. if I didn't do it by their deadline was a Fifty dollar a day. Uh, oh my god! Fine for every single day that I didn't mow that lawn, which you know, add, that could add up to you, yeah, you know lose yeah. my home. So, <laughs> so I. <laughs> That's terrible. I, <laughs> huh. okay. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Don't like go <laughs> by me at all. But um, I wonder if there's a way to flip that and to uh, put that back on the city in some way for not supporting native pollinators. You know to to basically say that they're they're standing in the way of the support of an ecosystem that would be supporting native pollinators that are crucial to the community for x y and z reasons um of course lawyers cost money too yeah (laughs) i mean from what little research i did do i i mean i am aware that i can get a permit to be a pollinator that's actually what you're called if to do what i was doing Mm -hmm. there's a legal way to do Mm -hmm. it you get a sign you can put it in your yard if your neighbors get mad they can shut up because (laughs) <laughs> they can't, you know, because mm-hmm. they can call the, uh, uh, I forgot the name of the, the, I forgot the name of the guy who came and gave me the violation, whatever he's called. If they call him, he can't do yeah. anything about it. So, <laughs> well, good. But it, uh, <laughs> anyway, thanks. You, thanks for letting me, uh, vent about them making me mow my lawn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, is, of course. I want to say, uh, so Bookchin, uh, he concluded by saying that capitalism began historically by undermining and overcoming the resistance of the traditional agrarian world to a market economy. It will never be fully transcended unless a new society is created on the land that liberates humanity in the fullest sense 
and restores the balance between society and nature. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on the essay? Um, I feel like that was a good, good way to end it for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's funny to read a lot of these, uh, the things that he says, because it's just like those cyclical, I don't want to say arguments, but the cyclical stances of like, we're still fighting the same fights. You know, this was in 72, we're now in 2022. So in 50 years, I mean, we're still in a space where we're trying to say we cannot restore what humanity needs from the current system we exist in we have to create a new system um and yeah i mean i think that for anyone who is like newly getting into agriculture or just maybe like newly waking up to the importance and the significance that agriculture plays in your life i think that learning more about how things are inter interconnected um discontinuing this belief in segmentation or fragmented fields of study or fragmented ways of understanding will provide a helpful lens to really seeing how that new system could be created. Because I think that, you know, one of those tools of, of capitalism being that, that fragmented or decontextualized um, passage of information, like bringing all of that back together and having more of a full systems approach or a full systems understanding or a holistic view of things will move this from like a place of despair and like there's no hope for us to actually having ideas, cultivating conversation, cultivating um, community and communion both with people and the land and like hopefully moving to a place of action and less from a place of, oh my God, we're doomed. <laughs> You heard it here first, guys. Do not become uh, climate doomers or agriculture doomers. There's so much we can do. There's so much we can do to change everything. And uh, speaking of that, uh, Leia, is there? Uh, would you mind sharing with everyone, like maybe how they can find uh, Hecuma for the future or follow you and uh, the things you're up to? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, my regular Instagram is Leia.oneboy underscore, which I'm sure maybe you'll you'll post it when you put it on Instagram. So it's a little easier for people to find. Um, but then Hakima for the future. Um, Hakima means wisdom in Swahili. So it's this idea that you are gathering this wisdom from native indigenous cultures. I'm from Kenya, so Swahili. And then um, and then applying that to the future, hoping that we can build a better future, um, you know, not just doing it for us, but for our communities, for, for the people around us, for the, the land around us and giving back um, instead of, you know, everything being driven from profit. So hakimaforthefuture.com or hakimaforthefuture on Instagram. Um, and yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, and I guess, I think I said this at the beginning, but I, I probably should just say it again. Uh, guys, if you want to read the essay that me and uh, Leia discussed today, it's called Radical Agriculture, and you can find it online at the Anarchist Library. Probably some other places too, but that's just where I know it's at. <laughs> uh, yeah. Leah, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was great. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye.